Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library, Wayne State University, in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, archivist at the Ruther Library, and I will be your host. Troy? Dan? What do you get when you cross a nun, a farm worker, and an environmentalist? An unlikely joke. It is very unlikely because I have no idea what the punchline is going to (laughs) be. But that's what we're going to be talking about today on our podcast. Back in April, we talked with John... Um, Bushkoski, a PhD candidate in the history from the University of Oklahoma. He was a recipient of the Sam Fishman Travel Grant. And what he did was basically he took a huge right turn onto his research and wanted to start looking at farm workers, religious women, and environmental ethics. Um, usually scholars that we know of, the farm workers, are usually covered um, by the male perspective, whether the worker or the leadership. Every once in a while, Dolores Huerta comes in and some other women, as noted. But John's research really takes us into a deep dive into, basically, um, you can call it emancipation of women's religious. There's a famous picture of these nuns walking, you know, marching in, in, well, marching in their habits with Dr. Martin Luther King and the Third Selma March in 1965, the Selma to Montgomery March. And can you imagine 1965? Here are nuns marching, and their priests were there too. Um, at a time as in the 60s, you had Vietnam, the start of the women's movement, uh, public employee power. Teachers are striking everywhere. It's madness. Uh, Civil rights, poverty. There's a war on poverty going to be established. So the world is being flipped upside down, and here are nuns marching for civil rights. Now imagine, if you will, so you have all this activities going on, but remember Cesar Chavez said, he wrote an essay called No No More Cathedrals. He was calling for action. He was calling for less words, more deeds. So these nuns were going, we're going to join up with this, because there already was an aspect of Catholicism. There is a human rights element going on, union rights thing going on. So they put their their bodies on the line to march with Cesar Chavez to um, spread the gospel, if you want to say, of the, of the boycotts that were happening. And they spent their lives with the farm workers' movement. And I haven't even touched on the aspect of environmental ethics. So this is what John was going to be, is going to be writing about and talking about in the podcast. So why don't we get started? I've talked enough. Uh, let's get into the interview. Okay, John, first, let's just try to figure out how you came to this kind of research. You were an environmental historian, and all of a sudden now you're talking about unions, you're talking about nuns. How did you get to this point? Yeah, great question, Dan, and thank you so much for uh, having me. It's an honor to uh, be here and to be at Wayne State. Uh, Detroit is a beautiful city, and we've been having a a great time here. I've been having a great time here. Um, I really got onto this topic because I started off studying Colorado water law policy, and I just wasn't really finding any more of the stories that I wanted to tell within that field. Um, I was just kind of spinning my wheels and not moving anywhere. So I went to uh, the American Society of Environmental Historians conference, and I was looking at the programming, and I really didn't see much on religion. And so this is something that I've always been fascinated by. 
uh, raised and practicing Catholic, so it's something that I fell uh, close to. And so I started looking into more of the literature, and I really couldn't find anything dealing with religion and the environment. There were a few books um, that recently been coming out about Protestantism, and especially prominent Protestants, such as Theodore Roosevelt, um, some of the painters in the Hudson uh, River School of uh, uh, painting tradition. But I wanted to see if there was some way that I could try to uh, tell the story about Catholics and the environment. So I started doing some searches. First place I looked was the Plowshares Movement, um, which was a pretty radical um, group of uh, Catholic priests and nuns and uh, other lay people who would uh, go on to military bases and also burn draft cards and uh, were just pretty radical. And so I decided to do some Google searches, just see what I could find out, look through some obituaries. So I searched Plowshares Movement, and I found an obituary of a nun um, who had recently passed away. She'd been involved in this, some anti-nuclear movements, and she'd also been a part of the National Assembly of Women Religious. So I was like, that sounds kind of interesting. I'll take a little look into that. So I searched that, saw that Notre Dame had over 100 uh, linear feet of um, resources pertaining to that one topic. So I was interested in it, took a trip to South Bend, looked at uh, what they had in their finding aids. Didn't find much about anti-nuclear movements. There was definitely some of it. But what I discovered was that they were tightly affiliated with the United Farm Workers Movement. Um, uh, Cesar Chavez had... Uh, come to a lot of their annual meetings and conventions, told them uh, what was going on in uh, California. And most of these nuns were based out of Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Milwaukee. I mean, this is a prominent area in the Midwest that has a strong unionist tradition. So I just um, really became enamored with the story, um, had a chance to go to California, do some research there, and I'm excited to finally be here and to continue my work at uh, Wayne State as well. So that's how you got here. That's that's great. So what kind of things, obviously you're looking at the, you know, the farm workers collections we have here and the, mm-hmm. and the various boycott cities. Uh, right. What other collections are you looking at that are bringing in the Catholicism into the UFW and vice versa? Yeah. So um, I'm looking at the Victor Saladini uh, papers. He was a prominent priest who was involved uh, in that movement. One of the things I'm also looking at is how this was interdenominational and very ecumenical. So I'm looking at a lot of the interfaith uh, works uh, through the migrant ministry papers, looking at a lot of the papers from uh, Reverend James Drake or Jim Drake, and also uh, Chris Hartmeyer. Um, So it's because that's how a lot of people were communicating and understanding what was going on with the, the farm workers movement was through the migrant ministry. So when I was at Notre Dame, I saw that a lot of the leadership of NAWR and LCWR were communicating through this movement, through the migrant ministry. So yeah, I saw a lot of papers from Jim Drake and uh, Chris Hartmeyer there as well. So have you found that, oh my God, here's that piece of paper I really need to, or here's that letter that's really, you know, make my dissertation come alive or anything like that yet? Yeah. So I found a few of those things, absolutely. What I really wanted to do here at, or what I really wanted to find here at Um, Wayne State is how they were talking about pesticides, how they were talking about this as hazardous laboring conditions, and how that was also impacting the consumer. Because one of the things I'm really interested with this project is how the United Farm Workers Movement became more of a feminist movement. So I'm looking at this through uh, nuns and how they usually would try to 
transfer this knowledge in terms of how it would impact consumers, how it would impact the family, how it would impact, and trying to convince housewives and uh, mothers to uh, support the boycotts. So I found a lot of fantastic documents about pesticide use and how they were distributing this information. Yeah, I've also found some really interesting information about disagreements between uh, Larry Itliang and Cesar Chavez over religious differences and also how um, Mexican-Americans and Filipino-Americans, how there became a kind of a split between both parties over that issue. So that was just something that I was kind of blown away by. And also, some of the images that I've found here have just been absolutely phenomenal. There's one of a nun carrying a UFW flag. And I have to admit, I got chills running down my back because it's like I almost just had a vision in my mind that this is what I would want to use for the cover art for a book if, I, if I'm if i fortunate enough to get to that point. So definitely took a note to remember that image and try to track down who the photographer was right. and yeah, see if I could get the rights for that. But Yeah, that happens a lot here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's a great picture. I love that. Yeah, the chills. Um, So you were talking about how the narrative was talking about the pesticides in the food to convince the consumer that they have to support the boycott. Is this one of the strategies they used, the farm workers used, to spread this nationwide? Because when I was a kid, we didn't eat grapes. Yeah. We didn't see them. And so I was living in D.C. area. Wow. California, D.C. So do you see this part of the strategy? Was there more to it to how it spread across the country and got such such legs, basically? Yeah. So I think it was a multilateral, if that's the right term, a strategy or uh, yeah, part of the strategy for um, attracting more supporters of this boycott. I think looking at the pesticide use was a major part of it. I think by looking at the religious element, um, a lot of this is a pretty uh, radical time for the Catholic Church, you know, post-Vatican II. There seem to be a lot of possibilities for what's going to happen. So a lot of religious women, lay women, want to have a bigger representation within the church. And one of the ways that they want to do this is by supporting Catholics that they feel are victims to social injustices. So that's by trying to appeal to them, they're able to also view this as a way to support other Catholics and to uh, do their part to try to affect some major change. So there are a lot of different ways of of viewing this. Pesticide use, supporting people who are victims to um, an unjust system. Yeah, that's that's what I've primarily seen so far. Uh, That's kind of the fun thing about starting a dissertation project is you're never really sure. I mean, I've got some assumptions and some hypotheses, but I'm excited to look through the documents and read them with a fine uh, tooth comb to try to uh, uncover and uh, really understand some of these other ideas. and Yeah, you really never know where it's really going to go at this beginning point. Oh, exactly. exactly. Especially with what you said is like this was a new day for nuns, for the clergy post-Vatican II, mm-hmm. uh, which was basically, a li- in a way, a liberation of the Catholic Church, you can say. Yeah. Right? And so now nuns who were used, used to be behind the scenes, authoritarian, <laughs> This is what you did. You educated the kids, and that's it. Yeah. Now here they have the freedom to go out and spread the gospel through social justice. Exactly. So did you see more nuns coming in? I know they were in Selma. They were doing stuff in urban areas. I just read a book on that just to get up on this Very research cool. here. Yeah. But um, how did they change? Or what were they doing with the farm workers? Were they you know, carrying flags? But what were their daily activities like? Do you, do you have that grasp yet of what they were actually doing for the movement? 
Yeah. So this is something that I've seen a little bit about, and this is kind of how I'm expanding my project a little bit further to look at other uh, women, not necessarily nuns, but I'm also looking at Dorothy Day and her involvement within this movement. So I've had a chance to go to Marquette and look at their papers there. And so by just like actively protesting and uh, picketing uh at the at the fields and also being willing or willingly being arrested and uh, sharing their stories from the prisons uh, just or uh, from jail just to help illustrate um, how inhumane a lot of these conditions were for the workers and for how those who were striking were impacted by this movement as well. So. But I'm also interested in how people who weren't necessarily on the front lines were also participating in this in their everyday lives. So um, I've just been able to see that they were handing out a lot of literature and uh, picketing outside of Safeway, I think, primarily in Chicago and a lot of the Midwestern cities. And also they were writing to uh, the editors of newspapers. So they were able to get in some letters to the editor about the situation that was going on at some of the vineyards. So um, it's kind of cool seeing the Chicago Tribune, the leadership, actually getting a platform um, that would reach uh, many more people. And the editor actually tried to refute some of that information as well. So it's kind of interesting to see this back and forth going on between um, nuns and the Chicago Tribune and other newspapers. That's interesting. Yeah. That is really interesting. How did the, the, the involvement with nuns with the movement, did they influence as well the church itself on the views of the farm workers? I know, you know, right from the beginning with the farm worker movement and the union was involving the Catholic church in one way or another or having representation, um, icons and having all sorts of things there, you know, masses at the, at the sites, how do they influence and bring a more feminist aspect to what we could say is more of a masculine union at the time? Yeah, um, absolutely. That's that's a great question and one that I've been uh, dealing with a lot, trying to parse through and figure out. I would say that they were able to gain some followers among uh, bishops who were more willing to listen to them. So, for example, like the auxiliary bishop of Detroit, Thomas Cumbleton, was a major supporter of this movement and. Uh, primarily through Pax Christi USA. And that's something that I'm just trying to work through right now is, yeah, one of my hypotheses is that through uh, this feminist movement, because, the, yeah, that's one of the things that was going on is that while they're becoming more socially aware, they were also adopting environmentalism and feminist ideas and sharing bibliographies of works that everyone needed to read, such as Simone de Beauvoir and um, Betty Friedan. So they're definitely trying to inspire um, more of the male clergy and a hierarchy of the church to adopt some of these ideas. But ultimately, I think one of the things I'm going to eventually have to argue is that this was a pretty short-lived idea and movement because there was definitely a conservative backlash by the mid-1970s. I think we can kind of see that within United States politics at large. I think a lot of nuns started becoming disillusioned with the United Farm Workers Movement by the mid to late 1970s as well. So they're focusing a lot of their energies on the Equal Rights Amendment and its passage. And a lot of bishops agreed with them. They believed that uh, this this movement should be, or that this amendment should be passed. And so um, looking through a lot of the documents, I can see that uh, there were a lot of um, bishops and priests who were backing uh, and agreeing with what NAWR and what some of the other um, religious women unions and organizations were agreeing with. But 
eventually a lot of these things became kind of toothless. And looking at the early 1980s, eventually most of these organizations are just struggling to try to find anyone who will pay their membership dues to keep this organization afloat. So it kind of just simmers and uh, ends with a whimper, unfortunately. So that's where I see the trajectory of the story going so far. I do think that they were very impactful in gaining support from sympathetic bishops and priests, but then they need to become even more, uh, they need to push even harder on some of these um, specifically gender equality-based issues. Absolutely. That's 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 kind of what happens with the 70s. Conservative tilts, uh, no one has any more money. We're yeah, in a, exactly. a recession. And um, most of these things that were happening in 60s and 70s were kind of mellowing out and dissipating away. However, except for the environmentalism. Yeah. Because you got to admit, that's when, in the, I remember in the 80s, that's when we started being more aware and getting politicalized about environmentalism. So it continued on. Exactly. And the conversation really did start. I mean, I let me go back. Chavez always claimed that they were the first to ban DDTs in the 67 contract. Yes. So it wasn't EPA. It wasn't these other environmental groups. It's like the farm workers saying, we are the environmental group. Mm-hmm. So how are you wrapping in this environmental ethic and yeah. pointing it out toward what the farm workers were laying out, what Chavez was pointing out, what the UFWA was pointing out? Yeah, great question. Um, so... The way that I'm seeing that this this environmental ethic is I'm understanding it as Aldo Leopold laid it out is people becoming more aware of being citizens of the earth community. So the way that I'm understanding that is first um, understanding how people are being damaged by harmful, hazardous uh, working conditions. And the way I'm uh, seeing that transfer is that I've noticed that a lot of these religious orders are starting to adopt more environmental language within their mission statements as well. I'm looking at many of the leaders of this movement and what their, how their orders are standing now. Um, if you go to many of their websites, they'll mention how they have this environmental uh, ethos and how they're trying to become more subsistence-based, how they're trying to um, raise crops for themselves. There's actually a really influential um, ethnography that uh, came out back, I think, in 2010, by Sarah McFarlane called Green Sisters. And it's all about how for women to commit their lives to becoming members of um, a religious order, they need to place all of their trust in the generosity of others and in like God's providence as well. So they become much more attuned to uh, the natural processes as they're trying to become more dependent on crops and raising the food that they need to survive off of. So I'm seeing that as kind of the shift that's taking place. Then also meeting with uh, Chavez at a lot of conventions and bringing in a lot of environmentalist ideas and trying to transfer that into their curriculums that they're using or the curricula that they're using in their classrooms. I think that these are some of the really influential and impactful ways that uh, they're trying to adopt this environmental ethos. And also, um, by the 60s and 70s, there's this uh, transition to adopting more of the Ignatian uh, spiritual exercises, which is go out into nature, find a quiet spot that's peaceful, read some scripture, and just allow uh, God's word to move them in the silence of nature. So I, I think that there is a lot of things where um, the 
preservationist and environmental ideas are really starting to impact how they're trying to like practice their faith and how they're understanding God at this time as well. I, I, I'm always amazed, one, that here was um, the United Farm Workers of America were asking for a boycott of grapes, the simple little grape. Yeah. And they're asking for a sacrifice. Yeah. Not a huge sacrifice, but a small sacrifice. So one thing that led to, I see as religiosity as well, is like you're making a small sacrifice for yourself for mm-hmm. the larger goal, which ties in everything that you were kind of talking about with your dissertation. When you're in a union movement, you're making the sacrifice, paying dues that you don't have money for, but you're doing it for the right. cause. Environmentalism, religiosity, you're all doing that for a sacrifice. And here it all coming back. I see this dissertation as, let's talk about the simple sacrifices for the betterment of your religion, nature, and uh, labor. I think that's a great point. That's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so I just wrote your dissertation. We're done. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, that's uh, if you want to mind, I'll borrow that. Yeah. Um, Cool. I think that's a great way to stand. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Good? Uh, yeah, but let's try saying his name correctly. I did an interview with Jen Butchkoski. Butchkoski. Right? Yeah. All right. I did an interview with John Bushkowski. Bushkowski. I the Bushkowski. Bushkowski. Kowalski. All right, ready? You know, Bart asked oh God. if you mispronounce people's names on purpose. <laughs> nope. And I said, no, and I can prove it because he has mispronounced his own name. <laughs> <laughs> I have? Yes, you have. It's not as easy as you think. No. Words are hard. They are hard. Where's Kasky? That sounds like, uh, you're from Boston. I know. Bushkaski. Bushkaski. <laughs>